0: This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, president-elect of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this second of three episodes on the theme of peace, Barbara and David are joined by two guests. Hannah Bainham, a leading Montessori trainer and author, who has set up nurseries for Tibetan refugees in India and for low-income families in Turkey. And Charlie Cavaliero, a young researcher on peace, education and social justice, specifically in the favela communities in Brazil, who also has field experience in aid for victims of atrocities. Hannah, please can you describe how, in your experience, Montessori was a help to families burdened by conflict, exclusion, or poverty?
1: Wow, an interesting question uh, to start off with. Um, I think... Montessori had the right ideas, and if you consider and if you think about her experience within Rome in the ghetto, uh, she started off with children that didn't have privilege or didn't have access to certain things and uh, and really worked towards that. Um, I think unfortunately in the modern day world, Montessori has been monetized in a lot of ways. Uh, I think it has become something that is for a select few, uh, but I still think the principles and what I've seen around the world, actually, is some of the principles of Montessori are alive in the philosophy and in actions of some of these schools that come from nothing, that don't have all the materials, but that really believe and in, in, in capture the philosophy. Uh, so, I mean, I think Montessori, with their ideas of freedom, uh, really allows for children to explore and understand the world around them is that...
2: <laughs> that that's a great summary hannah thank you for that um what about in societies where they don't believe in freedom so much i'm thinking of for example china which has a thriving uh montessori uh community it's growing rapidly I'm, what I'm worried about with China, for example, is that they are interested in the, um, you know, the learning of language and and maths and the sort of, they treat it as a kind of hothouse technique for accelerated learning. Um, you know, we, in the West here, we have very high value placed on liberty um, and on um, independence and so on. But perhaps in other societies, a like China where there are kind of Confucianist belief in order social order being more important than anything else um, how does Montessori fit into other cultures
1: in your experience I can see how the academic side of Montessori is is used often Uh this week, I listened to uh, a webinar where this quote came from Montessori from the Four Planes of Development, which to me really pinpoints what children feel. <laughs> and I think that that's important when we're addressing education in these places where maybe freedom isn't so ripe <laughs> or isn't so uh, valued in that same way. Uh, this quote comes from Four Planes of Development. Uh, Montessori says, they, the children, have a keen feeling towards injustice. We must help them to develop within themselves that which will make them capable of understanding. It is not merely words, it is a labor of education. This will be preparation for peace, for peace cannot exist without justice. And so if I think about uh, my experience traveling and my experience growing up and my experience working with children children do have a keen sense of injustice. One of the first things that they say is, that's not fair. <laughs> that's something that I used to say to my parents, you know, that's not fair. My dad often would say, life's not fair, which I think is a very lazy <laughs> answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's one that I've, you know, have used uh, before. But um, that. That sense of injustice, I think, happens within all children. And I think um, no matter what country you live in or no matter where you are, there is that innate, that human tendency for communication, for for justice. And I think she doesn't quite label it that way, um, but those freedoms allow for that justice. And so when we think about the freedoms... Things like freedom to move, freedom to choose, freedom to contemplate, the freedom to repeat, to socialize, to play, to make decisions, and the freedom of expression. I mean, if in any Montessori classroom, those freedoms should should exist whether it was more (laughs) academic-based classroom or whether it's really more allowing the children to to choose. But that that idea of movement is, is connected there. I've been thinking a little bit about uh, injustices and uh, recognizing injustices and uh, I I myself have had a lot of uh, experiences uh, recognizing injustice and that kind of made me the child I am and the person I am. In fact, teachers often said that I was very (laughs) anti-authority, which I'm very proud of (laughs) to this day, (laughs) Uh, but that was often a comment on my report card. Uh, But speaking on China specifically, um, I worked at a Chinese uh, international school in Hong Kong. Before I was a Montessori teacher, I was a primary two teacher, Uh, and we did a project on different regions of China. And so obviously I wanted to do Tibet because that is where (laughs) my passion and my travels have led led me when when I go to China. It's always about going to Tibet. Uh, And... We explored the culture of Tibet with these Chinese children. Uh, they were Hong Kong Chinese, uh, but again, they were learning Putonghua, and it was a very Chinese nationalistic school. Uh, we learned about Tibet. We learned about uh, the food and the language, and I kept I kept very, very far away from <laughs> explaining what actually had happened in Tibet, and that was used to be a free country. I didn't go into that because I didn't want to influence children. I, children are very impressionable. And I think the Chinese are a classic example of using children for propaganda. And I, again, didn't want to implement that at all. Um, but I did, uh, I, you know, we talked about Tibet. I showed the flag, the Tibetan flag. We talked about the language, a little bit about the religion. And year two, these children were seven, eight years old. They went home. <laughs> they researched. They came in and said, Hannah, did you know that Tibet used to be free and that the Chinese occupied Tibet? I got a little bit nervous and I said, oh, yeah, I I did know something about about that. Uh, They started getting really interested in this topic and they said, you know, Tibet should be free. And they were talking, looking, researching themselves with their families at home. Uh, I stayed quiet and tried to be very neutral about the situation. Uh, the Chinese headmistress came to me and said, okay, you're doing a presentation. We don't want you to mention His Holiness. We don't want you to mention the, the Tibetan flag. Just, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, Tibetan culture, yaks and, and things like that, and and that's fine. Um, I told the children this, we've got to keep it very simple and, and let's just talk about the culture and the mountains and, and everything. And they said, well, we want to talk about how should, Tibet should be free. And I said, well, we can't really talk about that. <laughs> but, you know, let's just, uh, let's, just have, uh, let's just talk about, you know, the yaks, the animals and things. So I stood up there in front of the whole school, about a thousand children, all of the Chinese national teachers. I uh, stood there in my chuba, my Tibetan dress, and we talked about Tibet. And my children, age seven and eight, stormed the stage with a Tibetan flag and yelled, free Tibet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing.
1: unpromoted (laughs) unprompted in any way I was in deep trouble, obviously. Um, (laughs)
2: This was before you were doing Montessori. This was was before
1: before I was doing Montessori. But now when I think about it, you know, when thinking about that quote Montessori said about that peace cannot exist without justice and that children have a keen feeling towards injustice, right? So this research, the fact that I asked them questions, encouraged them to to find out answers, that they felt free enough to find these answers— really, to me, illustrated that that children have a voice, children have feeling, children have passion, children have agency, and you can tell them not to do something. And I, believe me, my whole life I've been told not to do things, and I always do the opposite. <laughs> um, and and <laughs> children will fight for what they believe in. And I think, unfortunately, the older you get, the the more... You get a little more dull in your passions and and uh, and and maybe maybe that injustice isn't felt as strongly uh, for some children, but uh, yeah
2: well, that's it's really fascinating that the um, instinct towards justice and that justice is the foundation for peace, that the instinct is actually completely natural to all children, whether they attend Montessori schools or not, and that what Montessori is doing is Um, kind of leveraging that natural instinct they have to create other freedoms in all the other ways that you described. Do um, do you agree with that, Barbara?
3: Um, Yes, I I feel uh, that Hannah's example is a very Mm -hmm. positive example of natural children's natural feeling for what is right and wrong. Their sense of... um, Morality really unfolds in the years from six to 12, and they will fight for the things that are that feel right to them. Um, for me, the opportunity for children to experience Montessori education has been reflected in my work um, in the school in Manchester, where the freedom to choose activities, the freedom to perhaps not to do things, really supported well children who came from very chaotic backgrounds. It gave them a sense of self and sense of belonging. So we have got two very different examples how children use freedom in order to spontaneously develop their humanity. And I think that is a really, really important element of all of us. Um, And as Hannah said, as we get older, we get more fearful and anxious about what we say and how we say it. Whereas children, if they are allowed to be, actually will voice their views very spontaneously.
2: Is, is Do we get more fearful, do you think, because we have more to lose? I mean, because we've spent years, decades building up careers, positions, incomes, and so on, and that we're... We're more cautious because we know that getting into trouble when you're you know our age, I mean, actually at our age, Barbara, it doesn't matter at all. but um, <laughs> but in middle age, put it that way, that it's actually that's what inhibits people moving towards justice when they're older.
3: Yes, I think that that is very true, but that it is important in the new generation to instill this feeling of what is right and wrong and having the capacity to voice this when it is right. Because all of us get faced with situations in our lives where we will have to make a choice. And often when we allow the fear of the circumstances to overtake us, we actually realize that that fear or that issue will come back. We will have to face it again sometime in our lives. And um, so giving children the strength to know that they are competent, that they have got agency, that they need to be brave, but that that is important part of humanity is what Montessori really gives to children when it is delivered focusing on the spirit of the human being rather than on the materials that we work with. Um, uh,
4: Charlie, how how does this relate to your
2: experiences as well?
4: I'm relatively new to Montessori. I'm still training, actually, with Hannah and Barbara. Um, And I guess I, I came to Montessori particularly through experiences I had in Brazil where. I was working with children who have experiences of violence and conflict in their everyday lives where things like justice don't really exist. Um, They are victims of cultural violence in terms of um, stereotyping who they are, where they come from, what they look like. Um, Physical violence, they are often targets of um, police Brutality, gangs. Um, lots of young children in the areas of Brazil that I was working are recruited into drug gangs because they are um, seemingly less likely to get caught. Um, and in situations like this, it's difficult to think about justice. It's difficult to think of how, how peace could ever work. Um, but one of the things I, I saw every day working with these children was that education was the one thing that they came back to, that always gave them a place that was safe, activities that were fun, communities that understood them, other children to talk to, which in these um, favelas is something, you know, socialization isn't something that is isn't something that is necessarily encouraged or available if parents are scared that their children will be shot in the street, literally. Um, I had one mother who I worked with closely who, who told me every day I am terrified that walking my child to the bus and they won't come home again. You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to think about justice in those sorts of situations when the structures that are governing these Societies, these cultures negate any kind of rights almost um, i was I was really searching for a type of education, a way of of doing education that could change those structures right from the from the ground level. I think for me that 's where montessori 's strength is it It really works from the ground up and it instills in children a very deep sense of community, of belonging, um, of, of duty to not only the community around them, but, but to the wider world and the environment. Um, and so for me, that, was that, that sort of cosmic education was the first thing that I, I read about um, concerning Montessori and was, to be honest, <laughs> the thing that drives me to continue learning about the pedagogy to this day um, and to see how and if it can be applied in situations where children are, are victims of violence, are victims of conflict. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating to see how education can really be such a, a fundamental... Tool, I suppose, for for sh- sh- for shifting power relations, for changing those structures, um, and yeah, it's 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 wonderful to be able to learn from people like Barbara and Hannah, who have been doing this for far far longer than I have, but have really fueled that passion that I that I've gained from experiences like those that I was um, that I had in Brazil. I was very very fortunate to have in Brazil.
2: So. Um that's that's very moving i have to say to know that your passion for montessori comes from witnessing some of the most awful conditions for children and wanting to improve it which i think is you know there's so many different reasons people have for coming to montessori all of them very positive um and they're all looking for a way to effect change that like you say from the ground up from from the very beginning of life to help, help create better people. Um, Hannah, did you find that when you went to Tibet after your, um, Montessori training that you, um, you found a good response? What was it like? What did the local
1: people think about it? Uh, I went to India, uh, to train Tibetan refugees. Um, so it was very different. I, although my dream was to open up a school in Tibet, uh, Yeah, it's not not possible at the moment. (laughs) Freedoms freedoms don't exist in that uh, in that way. Right. Um, But uh, but yeah, I mean, I found again again these children uh, these children and their parents had made made the journey from Tibet across the mountains across the Himalayas to escape injustices to come to India where they had more freedoms. Uh, The the thing that I found unique about working with the women, the Tibetan refugee women, was, again, their care, but that idea of preserving culture. And I think preserving culture uh, is is something that Montessori can do in such a unique way. Um, Charlie and I have had many conversations about uh, this uh, and, and thinking about refugees and thinking about... Uh, thinking about how we can create a safe space for children. Uh, And we've talked about uh, practical life or activities of everyday living, where it really mirrors maybe those things that they've left behind in their countries, or it mirrors, it gives them a kind of settling aspect. And it's, again, not just the materials working on the fine motor skills and, and things. It's really... That socialization, that comfort that comes from this area, seeing things that are familiar, uh, working together, uh, you know, coming coming from chaos and then having a routine and knowing what it was what's expected. And I think that there's, yeah, there's real beauty in the that's that area, particularly uh, thinking about uh, about links to cosmic education and how. Uh, we really start representing culture and seeing culture uh, within practical life, uh, but also we learn respect, that consideration for others, uh, the grace and courtesy lessons, um, which are developing and agreeing on ground rules with each other and, g- again, giving children that agency. Um, again, it's... it's. Uh, it's a place where they can be home. Montessori said Casa de Bambini, house of the children. And I think it's very important, no matter where you work, to create that house.
2: It's it's very powerful that you were doing this work in in a in a place where refugees were living. Was it was it a camp? What were the conditions like there?
1: Uh, It's called Norbalinga Institute, and uh, it's an institute which works toward preserving Tibetan culture. Uh, So many of the parents come and they they paint the traditional tankas or do traditional sculpture, or it gives them kind of an income to preserve Tibetan arts. And so part of the institute was creating this nursery or creche, for the children uh, whose parents were working at the institutes. Uh, and so many had just come over from Tibet and many had been there for quite a f- quite some time. Uh, but Dharamsal is an interesting place because it's not really a Tibetan refugee camp per se. It's not a camp, but it's a place of transition People often come waiting to get out, waiting to, to go to the West and, and have different opportunities. Uh, so um, it, was, it was interesting to see the children who, you know, would come and then would leave. And, and it was that kind of migrant uh, community.
2: Did they see it as a transition from their refugee condition to becoming more comfortable with the liberties and opportunities of the West?
1: Uh, I think with the children, uh, the children especially that I was working with, um, they had very few memories of Tibet and so all they knew is this Indian culture uh, and we're learning English and, and uh, we're learning Hindi uh, and then we're keeping their Tibetan uh, roots. Uh, so yes, maybe there's there was a certain exposure that Dharamsala had because a lot of Western travelers come there, a lot of Famous people uh, come to visit His Holiness. And so there's more of an international feeling of Dharamsala, which maybe prepares them for the West. But again, um, a lot of the a lot of getting to the West requires illegal <laughs> situations of marrying somebody or actually getting on a boat and making it to Turkey. Uh, and then getting on a boat from Turkey, you know, to Paris, uh, to to Europe, um, it's yeah. There's still a struggle in in that getting to the West as well. Was was your
2: impression that the the need for peace, um, both in their own lives and in, um, in in political terms, that that was somehow um, going to be addressed by the experiences they were having with you in the Montessori um setting up the Montessori school and raising money to 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 do the Montessori project did, did they see did they see the obvious relationship between um peace and and their own situation
1: I mean I think it it helps to have a spiritual leader uh, like His Holiness the Dalai Lama because he believes education is a key uh, is of key importance for creating peace and for his Tibetan people. Right, so to be living in Dharamsala with uh, with His Holiness, it's it's already such a great privilege and honor for for the Tibetans uh, to be there. But, I mean. I think mostly in my working and training the teachers, uh, who uh, Barbara came, came over and we did workshops uh, with the teachers, and for some of them it was their first qualification. We gave them a certificate at the end, it was their first qualification. Uh, again, it was giving them a sense of empowerment, and that's what I'm really, really interested in when it comes to teacher education and teacher uh, training is, you know, our work with children is so special. Uh, but it is that in sense of empowerment it's that spiritual preparation it's that that personal journey that we go go on as teachers, as training for teachers, and that we're on for the rest of our lives. Um, I think that 's what Montessori was talking about when she was considering the idea of the cosmic plan, where each individual. Have some has something to contribute to this world, right? So whether you're a child, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a parent, you all have something that's to, that's to contribute to the world, and it's about finding those individual passions, and it's about finding your individual place on earth to help the greater community and the greater cause. And I think that you know Montessori captured this very well uh, in in that idea of helping. Teachers understand their cosmic plan, uh, and and talking about this cosmic education, uh, which is really about the interdependence. Um, but I think that's you know it's it's really about planting those seeds and that own individual journey to some extent. And and so I hope I hope it's made a difference. The training, many have gone over, gone to the West now, uh, but many of the teachers are still there, and Montessori is still a big part of their. Of their school. So I'm, I'm proud that that's still the case.
2: Is there a, a bridge between all of these personal experiences and personal growth and developing your personal horizons um, in, in a way that leads you to see your role in the cosmos? Is there a relationship between that and political activism of wanting to actually go back and you know, do what they can to change conditions for their uh, for the people they left behind. Um, or is it just I need to move forward? I, I can't deal with that. It's too big a question. What was your impression of of how people felt? Um, did they want to just escape and and create a new world which was going to be better, or did they did they feel that there was an obligation on them to to reform the conditions they'd that that, that made them want to leave?
1: I think it's very difficult to talk for other people's experiences uh, and uh, I, I can't, I've never been uh, in the experience of being a refugee, of being stateless. Uh, I've never uh, had that experience of of wanting a better life for my family and, and escaping political and religious persecution. Uh, so it's very, very difficult for me. To say what they <laughs> what they have wanted, um, but I mean, in terms of that, in terms of that bridge, uh, I think. So I was born and raised in India uh, to very hippie parents who <laughs> believed in uh, in really um, showing us the world and showing us the world through the best education is experience and travel, and so. I remember at age 13 uh, going to Afghanistan. Uh, My parents, my dad was doing an eye camp there uh, in a very remote part of uh, the Wakhan corridor. Uh, And uh, we did this eye camp and there was these women who had traveled for three days and hiked these mountains to come to because they heard that there was a doctor that were looking at their eyes. And uh, when they arrived there, uh, the religious holy man, the mullah said, they couldn't lift up their burkas because the men, the doctors were men, and they didn't. They couldn't lift up their burkas to see to check the eyes. Um, this at age thirteen, I was incredibly. I, that this was so unjust to me, I was so angered by this, but I didn't do anything. Again, that fear. I didn't know what I could do. I was just thirteen, but I remember watching uh, a twenty-year-old woman. Just stand up and yell at this religious uh, guy, uh, and said that this is not right. <laughs> you're discriminating against these women. They need help. They need health. And uh, this was a really fundamental moment for me uh, in my growth as a feminist. Uh, in my in my bridge of again, when you're talking about those bridges, when you know our experiences really shape who we are, and the injustices that we see and that we envision shape who we are. And so. I think it was at that point I realized that I wanted to spend the rest of my life fighting and fighting for women and fighting for people that maybe haven't had the same experiences as me. And I think, again, um, I think again, it's about using privilege <laughs> uh, for positive ways. Um, but I think that happens, those injustices happen as a child and those experiences happen and they guide us to who we want to be and, and what our cosmic plan is. And if we haven't had those experiences, uh, and if we haven't been exposed to those things, it's very hard to create those, create that passion or that, that understanding of who we are. So that is my own personal experience. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. It's really interesting. Barbara, I know that you had a change in, in life. You left, um, your home in Eastern Europe to come to live abroad and make a new life for yourself. Um, what was in your experience the relationship between your own sense of, um, personal growth and, uh, and, and and freedom and, and the societies that you felt, um, you know, you weren't prepared to stay in.
3: I think that from my perspective, the opportunity to leave the Czech Republic at the age of 18 was a huge sense of liberation. I knew from the very beginning that we lacked personal freedom, not only in terms of freedom of expression, but also freedom of movement. We were not allowed to leave the country without getting a permission from the government to leave. So when the Prague Spring Spring came in 1968, I was so delighted to be able to leave. And I have come to England with such joy of being in a different place. And I really relished um, the freedom to be able to say things that you wanted to say that were on your mind. And I have benefited from this freedom until today. But in fact, um, as I have grown older, I have come to realize that those freedoms are something that I want to give to children. I don't want children to be subject to any curtailment of their personal sense of self and that was one of the main reasons why I have been attracted to study Montessori in my mid-30s because I saw it as an educational program which will allow children to be who they are and I am delighted that I have found this personal path in my life because being in the service of children still remains a very important motivator for what I do today, even though I no longer train teachers. But uh, as Hannah was speaking, I was reminded of a situation where um, when I visited a school in Bosnia, we interviewed parents about why they have chosen the Montessori school for their children. And without any exception, every parent said they wanted the school to help their children understand what peace is so that they could live in a peaceful world. And that was my experience of living in a a country decimated by war and what Montessori could really offer to children and their families of the next future. And it was truly a really humbling experience, very different to the experience of working with the Tibetan women in Dharamsala, where I felt not anger on their part, but their need and willingness to do the best for their children so that they would have opportunity of better life. I didn't feel that the place where the better life was was important, but that they instilled some kind of value inside themselves, that they had the strength to be themselves wherever they went. And so that has been a very powerful connection to me for my initial experience of coming to England at 18.
2: Oh, that's really interesting. So is peace a kind of um, a process of, of social reform, the pursuit of social justice, because it's a never-ending pursuit, um, it, it, without violence, basically, you know, in constructive ways, working with children, working with um, empowering, you know, your peers, working with spreading knowledge and, and new perspectives... Um, what do you think, Charlie? Do you think that peace, uh, you, know, w- you know, in the areas that you've, you've seen, the lack of justice, do you think that there are peaceful ways to achieve reform in those places?
4: It's, it's an interesting question because I think often we assume that peace is the same everywhere, that it looks the same everywhere, that it's achieved by doing the same things everywhere. That what we in the UK or in the West understand as peace also is understood like that in other places in the world. And I think it's important when we talk about peace to recognize that that's not the case. Peace has to be grounded in the context in which peace is being achieved or people are fighting for peace. I think for us to go into um, a context, a war-torn country, a refugee camp, and to say, this is what you're missing, this is how you're, you should be peaceful, is to undermine the whole point of peace. I think there's a very important reckoning that education, Western education, has to do in terms of giving people who are based in these contexts that we're working, like Hannah said earlier, the power and the agency to decide what that peace is going to look like and where that peace is going to come from. I've been asking myself recently if peace and justice... Are even the same thing? Because we can strive for peace through methods that aren't necessarily peaceful. Is revolution, is protest, a violent protest perhaps, a legitimate way of searching for peace, of fighting for peace? And to be honest, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure about how I can reconcile that in my head. I think it's also important to recognize that that, that peace is a privilege. Um, where, I, where I was working in Brazil, the the everyday situations of the majority of people are such that they are so preoccupied with finding food, making sure their children are clothed, making sure they get to school safely that fighting for peace or working for peace is something that is beyond the realms of their everyday life. When I was studying in, in the favelas in, in Rio, I thought about the, the everyday education, the everyday tactics that people use to survive. And that was something that was very powerful for me to kind of confront my understandings of what education should and could look like. It's not necessarily just about what happens in the classroom. Montessori, in that sense, is a a pervasive pedagogy. It expands outside of the classroom and instills itself in communities. And I think it's important when we talk about things like peace not to see it as a kind of um, homogenous form. It is different. It is contested. It is... um, it offers opportunities for resistance, just as much as it offers opportunities for um, reconciliation. Um, there's a one of the sort of founding fathers of peace education studies made this very important distinction between positive peace and negative peace. It was Johan Galtung, who was a, a Norwegian sociologist, and for him, negative peace is this understanding that there's a a simple lack of violence, that we are in a state of of peace. There is no war, right? Compare that to positive peace, which is peace that comes from within, that is structural. That is, um, people are free from discrimination, inequalities, lack of access to resources, things like that, that are less visible, but are ultimately drivers for conflict. And I think... When we think about peace, it's important to understand those um, intersections, those complexities. We can't just assume that peace is the same thing everywhere, or that it is even something that is in the minds of people who are experiencing conflict. The, The everyday life of people is... They might not have the space even to think about peace. And how we as practitioners, as educators, as teachers, as people working in the education space negotiate those difficulties, I think, is, is very important um, and is, especially for, for Montessori, something that is instilled in that reflective practice that we, that we do.
2: That's, I, I think um, the idea you were quoting that peace comes from within is almost the essence of Montessori because we're trying to help the child discover what's within and to fashion the kind of peace In their life which will um, bring fulfillment and meaning. Um, One thing I think is helpful when thinking about violence is that violence is really just fast harm. You know, when harm happens, you know, with an explosion or an attack or, you know, that we call it violence. But if harm is slow and cumulative and every day and it eats away at you, is it any less violent? So um, it's it's really a case of what timescale are you talking about for the persecution and oppression? You know, what perspective of time are you bringing to it? So when you say, you know, like, do we need violence to push back against an oppressive regime, for example, it doesn't have to be, all at once, in a big bomb <laughs> or, an, or, or an attack. It could be through this individual um, inner release of, of, of a peaceful existence interpreted, as you said, for, for each individual. And that, just as violence can be fast
1: or slow, so can peacemaking be fast or slow. I think, I mean, what Charlie said, that peace is a privilege. You know, some children don't have the luxury to not participate in the violence or the you know the structural system which is oppressing them it's not you know you know speaking about race some children do not have the luxury not to learn about racism because they experience it in every day and they experience it because society has has these structures these systems which 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 oppress them so that idea of having the luxury to be able to think about these things and come up with conclusions is a privilege. (laughs) It's, you know, some people, again, some people don't have those opportunities. And I think in Montessori, we try and create these microcosms of peace, these beautiful classrooms, these beautiful environments. We want to show the world what peace could look like. We want to show the children what peace could look like. But that is just a microcosm, right? How, you know, when they go home, when they go home to their communities, you know, when they grow up and they realize that, you know, life isn't fair (laughs) and there's a lot of injustices, there's a lot of things that were holding them back that they don't have the same access. You know, I think that it has to have that ripple out effect. And I I want children, what I love about Montessori is we give children that at the beginning of their life, beautiful example this foundation of what it is to love learning what it is to be heard what it is to have freedoms and what it is to be respected and if you give them that foundation if they feel that just even a little bit I hope that they will go on in the world and they will they will remember that feeling remember that experience.
4: I think for me it's about one of the things that I've been particularly struck by with the Montessori pedagogy is it's about posing problems. It's about critical thinking. It's not necessarily about offering solutions, which comes back to what I was saying, We're we're giving, or perhaps our aim is to provide children and people that work with children, let's not forget we're working in a school environment, the, the tools, the um, opportunities to be critical and to understand what, what's happening in the world around them and to, and to ask difficult questions and not to shy away from those questions. Um, I think that's something that the kind of quote-unquote traditional education systems really kind of fail to do. It's, it's often about the transfer of sort of predetermined knowledge. This is, this is important for your um, development as a, a good citizen this these packets of knowledge um whereas for me that kind of that self-realization that comes from asking difficult questions and often having difficult answers um is where the kind of really powerful thinking um comes from for children and and for adults probably more for adults to be honest children are already pretty revolutionary
2: (laughs) (laughs) <clears throat> barbara was that is that consistent do you think with what maria Montessori herself envisioned for the future um benefits of her movement was um, this self-realization in individuals carrying through um to their adulthood and then also extending outwards to the community uh,
3: i i really believe that uh, Montessori wanted the children to feel the agency they have. She wanted them to feel competent in their range of skills so that they could then enhance the community in which they live And I think that that community element uh, of Montessori teacher training and Montessori education is often overlooked currently. And I'm very delighted that some of these conversations have begun to surface. Uh, Some of them have been prompted by the various events of this year. But there has been a movement uh, which is taking us towards the vision of the spiritual development of the child and the spiritual development of humanity because this is very evident in Montessori's writing and there is a long way we have to go in order to instill this capacity in the teachers who work with the children so that the self becomes part of a much bigger picture. It becomes part of the cosmic plan and cosmic education that Montessori envisaged. So yes, each one of us has a contribution. However, we all need to be able to see ourselves as part of a community and the strengths that the community has. And we are part of many communities. It is the nursery community, the home community, the cultural community in which we grow up and to be able to situate ourselves in that community is very important gift we are giving to children for the future.
0: I think that's a great place to uh leave it for today. Um thanks to Barbara Isaacs and David Getman and our guests Hannah bainham and Charlie Cavaliero. Um I'll see you in the next episode.